Welcome to the Shrink Think Podcast. I'm Aaron. And I'm Nathan. And we're both licensed professional counselors in Oregon here to bridge the gap between therapists and clients. We are your companions on your journey to build your healthcare practice, yourself, and your relationships. To get you started, we've created a free email course on our website, shrinkthink.com forward slash awesome. Just kidding. (laughs) Forward slash podcast. We've got practical steps on overcoming fear and anxiety. Hey, thank you for joining us on the Shrink Think Podcast. Disclaimer and newsflash, we are not your therapist. Welcome to the game. We are just educating you and that is it. Do not take what we're saying as a life-changing situation. Please just enjoy the program, sit back, relax, and thank you for being here. Hey there, Daniel Fava here, and if you don't know me, I'm the host of the Private Practice Elevation podcast, where I share online marketing strategies and interviews to help private practice owners attract more clients and scale their businesses. The Private Practice Elevation podcast is part of the SiteCraft network of podcasts, and I'm super excited to be part of this network alongside Aaron and Nathan and the great work they're doing. If you haven't discovered the Private Practice Elevation podcast yet, you can find it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'd love for you to join me as we explore topics like building an effective website for your private practice, search engine optimization, content marketing, and copywriting, as well as my conversations with experienced private practice owners about scaling a practice, outsourcing, team leadership, and all the things that are going to help you elevate your business and create the life you love. Be sure to check us out at privatepracticeelevation.com for resources and content to help you in your online marketing journey. Hey everyone, welcome to the Shrink Think Podcast. We are excited to be here as always, but we're always especially excited to be here when we've got other people with us because, you know, hey, the more the merrier. Nathan and I are a party, but we love when people can... Perpetually excited. (laughs) you've never heard us not excited i don't know if that's a good thing or not but we love it so we're excited to be here today and especially when we've got a guest on our show it makes it even more exciting because we love to introduce people to let you uh, get to know somebody else and also just to share some new different perspectives and wisdom that we don't have that you know we just love learning along with you guys as a listener so today we've got on the show Andrew Lang, he's an educator in the Pacific Northwest and alumnus of Richard Rohr's Living School for Action and Contemplation. I think you should contemplate that for a second, what that means. <laughs> Just kidding. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Dead joke. And he's an author of a book called Unmasking the Inner Critic, Lessons for Living an Unconstricted Life. And along with writing regularly, he facilitates workshops helping people to navigate their inner lives and explore their sense of identity and spirituality. He's got a website that you can find more of his writings and offerings at Andrew G. Lang, like gangsta, andrewglang.com. <laughs> oh my and word. I gotta say, you know, this comes from, I grew up in Seattle, in Ballard, which was at the time, like not the greatest neighborhood. And it has become like hipster and bougie and all that kind of stuff. So that's where the G came from. He grew up, I think, in the- Gentrification. Hipster. Yeah, he, came, he grew up in like the new version of it. So apparently he's a Pacific Northwestern, grew up in Seattle, went to my rival school. I went to Ballard. He went to Ingram. 
So we're trying to bridge the gap between rivals on the show as well. So anyway, Andrew, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. I need to do my protective piece. I didn't grow up in the current version of Ballard. I grew up in the middle stage where the condos were just beginning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and there were no condos. They had not heard of condos. When I no, I, I remember when I was young and I, I heard condo for the first time and I was like, what is this monstrosity that is occurring? And that's yeah, why they were like kind of like high rise sorts of things that, you know, it yeah. was like an old town, an old Swedish person, sort of a town like single level, couple level, whatever, run down ish. And now, yeah, condos and restaurants and all that kind of stuff. So, so Andrew, tell us a little bit about yourself, like your story of, you know, who you are and really how you got into doing this teaching, writing and inner critic work. Yeah, totally. Um, Well, I'm stoked to be here. Also perpetually excited. I got into this work, mostly just doing my own stuff, processing my own experiences. I think that's really the primary driver for me is somewhere in college, post-college, I realized the stories that I had been handed um, that included stories about who I was, self-worth, identity in the world, purpose, meaning. I realized a lot of those stories didn't match the person I was becoming. They They didn't fit right in my body. And so it led to a lot of introspective work around where did the stories come from for me? Uh, you know, were they from my parents? Were they from growing up in uh, like a faith institution? Did it come from growing up, you know, with the people who are, I, I was around? Or were these stories that I had kind of weaved for myself? And they were just stories of younger me that I needed to figure out a way to to see them and let them go. So I think that's where a lot of it came from for me. And then where it really got the juice for me was I began to share with other people the practices I was doing, the questions I was raising and realizing other people were doing the same stuff. Other people were grappling with the same issues of like the stories I was handed don't work for me anymore. And either I want to engage, but I have no idea how, or I am engaging in those questions and reorienting to who I am, or I'm running the complete opposite way because the questions are so dangerous to my being and sense of identity. So I, I I think I got a lot of juice from that of just realizing I wasn't alone in the questioning process. I think our listeners are really going to love this. So we, a long time ago in the podcast, did an episode on internal family systems. And I bring that up because a lot of things that you're, I think, intuitively going to be sharing is an entirely different language for how to explain the inner world and some things of what's going on for people. And it's super helpful because I think the language in and of itself is what actually helps us gain movement in whatever we're doing from a mental health perspective, which is why some people really like CBT or something and other people just don't jive with it. And so I want to put it out there because I'm thinking some of our listeners are going to think that this sounds familiar, but I would challenge you and say, well, it's, it's probably familiar, but it's going to be a, a different way to look at everything. And one of the things you'd shared in the beginning, some of this is a, coming from a union perspective. Carl Jung, I think it would be helpful for the audience if you could define this whole idea. I mean, not to go into this gigantic definition of Jungian therapy or theory. But just a little bit of your teaching hat right here. Not like the will. If you open your textbook. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I I think defining the whole shadow idea is going to be helpful. Yeah, totally. So here's my, my like quick and dirty definer on shadows. As we grow up, and experience life, uh, 
what our shadow self is or the shadows that that kind of occur in our stories. They're the parts of ourselves that we don't want to deal with. They're the parts of ourselves that we kind of cast into the background in order to, to maintain an identity that works. So, for example, when we walk around the earth, there are parts of our identity that are um, incentivized and there's parts of our identity that are applauded. And then there are parts of our identity that aren't. And so we often shove those parts down deep. And so the Jungian aspect of this is just naming that the shadow self are these very important, vital aspects of us. They might be narratives. They might be experiences that we've had that we've allowed to settle down deep in our story and not really take a look at where that really has a lot of impact uh, for me is around inner critic work. Because what that can turn into is that you've got a lot of narratives that are rolling around in your head, but you never look at them. And if we don't look at them, then we operate from them in the world, like on autopilot. And that's where I think a lot of harm comes in. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say narratives, if I understand it right, I will tell people kind of break it down a little bit more and say like, these are just the things that you believe that you don't even necessarily know that you believe or the thoughts that you have or the thought patterns that you have or the reasons why you think the things that you think that come from somewhere. But if you look at the things that you're thinking, look at the things that you believe, those are your narratives. Totally. Totally. I mean, here's a very concrete example of a, of a narrative that, that I have experienced in my life, but like this feeling of control, I'm not in control. And I'm as a teacher for the last seven years, right? I I'm highly incentivized to pretend that I have some sort of control <laughs> when, when you've got 30 high school kids running around your classroom, uh, any teachers listening, there's no such thing as control as you know, but that, that narrative of that, I'm not in control can lead me if I'm not paying attention, if I'm not naming it for myself and saying, this is a real part of me that needs tending to, and needs uh, some questioning around needs tech. I, I have this practice that I sometimes lead people and call it a texturing practice where you just like you put texture on a wall, you put texture on a narrative that you have, you put texture on a feeling that you're experiencing. If we don't do those kind of practices to understand the layers of our narratives, then we go into our workplace with that narrative operating without us knowing in our heads And what are we going to do? We're going to blow our trauma through other people's bodies. We're going to blow the impacts of that narrative of that fear, right? Through other people in our attempts to to prove ourselves, our attempts to embody the identity that is respected and affirmed in that space. In the world of therapy, the power of connection and understanding is undeniable. That's where the peer network steps in offering a bridge of support that complements your clinical experience. Imagine a service where certified peer support specialists through telehealth extend your reach, offering clients continuous, compassionate care. This is what the Peer Network provides. Our peer support specialists are not just trained, they are experienced. They've walked the path of recovery and resilience. They speak the language of empathy and understanding essential in mental health and addiction recovery journeys. As a clinician, your goal is to see your clients thrive. The Peer Network enhances this journey, offering a layer of support that's accessible, reliable, and deeply human. Join us in this mission of comprehensive care. Incorporate the Peer Network into your practice today and witness the transformative power 
of peer support and mental health. Visit thepeernetwork.com. Together, let's create a world where everyone feels supported, understood, and connected. As you're saying that, I'm like, that's a lot of, it's a lot of feels. One of the things that I, in working with using IFS, internal family systems, the shadows that you're defining or that you're, as you're explaining, it would probably be the exiles of IFS. It sounds like the component that I run into sometimes with folks in doing IFS, some folks will have issue two different ways. One will be, there is, as I found about 10% of the population that cannot imagine they don't. They just don't have the ability to do it. The other component that I w- I'm wondering about, as far as if you've ran into any of this is in your work, is people that are going, I don't feel anything in my body at all. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, what what are you saying? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Well, and, and that's I think that's the impacts of our disembodied culture, right? Like we are incentivized to just keep going to, you know, all the statements that we have our colloquialisms, right? Like uh, rub some dirt on it, brush it off. All these statements that basically tell us to don't pay any attention to your body's experience. (laughs) I'll share a story really quick because I think it kind of drives that piece home. When I was 18, uh, I was leaving a community that I'd basically grown up in. I had chosen baseball over this community for years, but I still knew everyone there. And so we had this big going away party because my family was moving across town. And I was finding myself just bawling my eyes out. And it was all around. You know, even though I had chosen baseball over really seeing many of these people, they were still my people. They were still like pillars of my upbringing. So I'm bawling my eyes out, and this tall man comes from across the room, and you know, six two, six three, six four, somewhere in there, big long strides, and he puts his hand like real firm on my shoulder, and he just goes, "Men don't cry." And first off, just (laughs) yeah, (laughs) holy hell, it was terrible. And in the moment, that was my first real experience of um, like this embodied feeling of like, this is gross. This is wrong. Like there's something that doesn't match here. And in the process of unpacking that experience, I realized because what he was doing was his inability to experience his own stuff, his own uh, emotions and feelings and just his body's desire to cry. Right. What he was doing is he had spun narratives around you know, that he was taught around men don't do this. And he was then putting it on me. He was blowing his stuff through me. And there's so much. And so when I work with folks, I think one of the things, one of the first things, and especially with men, um, in my experience, one of the first things is what are the basic body sensations that you have? You know, what does it feel like when you touch the texture on your wall? What does it feel like when you put your hands on your face? Because it's like a whole different language. And so I've gone into spaces where I've done these practices where, you know, I've asked people to, you know, if you're feeling angry right now, where is that showing up in your body? And of course, a person's like, it, I, what? <laughs> it's showing up in my body. Is that normal? Is there something yeah, exactly. wrong with me if it's showing up? Am I, what yeah. body are you talking about? You exactly. Exactly. About. Yeah. Like, what is the medical diagnosis of this situation? Um, <laughs> right. And 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 so I think you have to start earlier than that, and you have to start with saying your body has a language. We have been incentivized not to pay any attention to it, and so small little steps, just like when you learn a different language than the one you uh, that you've been you've grown up knowing is you need to start 
playing with the foundations of that language. What does it feel like when you walk? What does your feet feel like when they hit the ground? Right. The simple things. And then you can then you can build up to the point of realizing, oh, every time this is my story, but like every time I'm angry, every time I'm worried about control, where does that show up? Tense shoulders every time. Um, in fact, the tense shoulders happen before I can name the anger or the out of controlness. And so it's a flag for me. The body knows before I do. <laughs> yes. I love that because it's highlighting that there's like, we are a system, right? We're like a machine or a system that functions a certain way. And all of us function the same way, hardwired, meaning like we have thoughts and feelings that go together. We have a thought and then a feeling or a feeling and then a thought, but we just know that they go together. And those feelings then manifest themselves in the body, generally in the kind of the same ways or in the same places or the same kind of regions of the body or the same general sensations, um, because that's how feelings work. Um, But each one of us can interpret those things or respond to those things in our own sort of individualistic kinds of ways. Um, But what you're describing is this is the way that the system is working. And it happens without it just like unconsciously, it happens without us being aware of it. And it's doing stuff. It's telling us to respond to the world. It's telling us how we're interpreting things in the world. It's telling us what we believe about ourselves and about other people. And all of this is just happening in the background. So what I hear you describing is like, we need to pay attention to these systems and tap into them so that we can change them or we can take control of them or we can rewire them, which doesn't mean that you can change like, like the feelings that you're feeling, um, like, you know, unplug and just be like sadness instead of anger. But it's more like (laughs) how or to what intensity or even why I'm responding to certain things, because there are these patterns that we need to be aware of. And we, when we can tap into them, we just take more control rather than be on autopilot. Totally, totally. Uh, a phrase I used to use, I don't use it as much anymore, but it, it made a huge impact on me was it's a two-parter. The first part is we need to learn how to say it is what it is, mm-hmm. both internally with our body, our emotional light, like be able to name it without judgment of just like, this is a thing that's happening. My body feels this way, or I'm thinking this thought. Uh, and externally, this thing I'm seeing the world in the world is happening. It is real. And then the second part of that statement is, and how can I be present with it in a loving way or a peaceful way or a kind you know, whatever language you want to use? How can I be with it? Not as a, um, you know, annihilator. I'm not here to like get rid of my, all of my anger because anger serves a purpose. There's a reason we have it. Uh, but how can I be with it so that I can understand it and walk with it in a way that's healing and not harmful? You know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier that I don't want to like move, we move through it quick is the idea that, and this is for you therapists out there that are listening also and, and for everyone really, but the idea that for some folks, they're going to need to practice ahead of time. It's this idea of, of being mindful, some kind of task that, you know, like washing dishes, for example, something that's simple, repetitive, where you just completely tune in to what it is you're doing in that moment, because it, you have to have some kind of starting point to begin to understand that you are embodying something. You are an embodied system. You are not simply the thoughts and feelings that you have. You are more than that. And like Aaron, you were talking about, and it was kind of, I know that you weren't doing, you know, trying to overgeneralize, but about like, you know, how your feelings are in certain spaces, generally speaking. The other piece of that pie is that when you, when you get more into this, you'll also learn that people will, for example, when I'm doing IFS, they'll say, oh, this, this part's in my chest. 
And the more we get into it, they'll be like, oh, that part is too. But then as we start to go, they'll find out like, nah, not really. That one's minor more off to the left and the other one's more off to the right. You start to understand how, how your body is literally experiencing the world. And that is not just the creation. It's, it's like other people that are in the world and also your previous history. But what I was wanting to ask you, Andrew, is, is there something that it, you find yourself kind of repeating? I don't know if you've kind of already done it, but like this idea that, man, I, you know, I feel like I keep saying the same thing as people are my, maybe not picking it up or maybe you're just impassioned about it. Well, it kind of goes with what you're just saying. So the phrase that I always use, and I think it it's a hard one to embody, is that all of this work is capacity building. And we're attempting to build our capacity to be more aware of our aliveness, you know, build our capacity to be more aware of what it means to be human, build our capacity to experience more of our emotions in a holistic way and not a way that drives us into reactivity. Thanks for listening to the Shrink Think podcast with guest Andrew Lang. The second part of this interview will conclude in the next episode where we will talk about shadow work, and how you can practically build capacity for growth and change in your life just with some practical tips that you can apply to your life. So stay tuned and as always, have a great day. Thanks for listening to our show. Don't forget to head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts to leave us a review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also visit our website at www.shrinkthinkpodcast.com forward slash course and sign up for our free email course, Nine Ways to Overcome Fear and Self-Doubt. And you'll get nine weeks worth of customized practical strategies you can use to get past the fear that's holding you back in your life. Thanks again for listening.